We will get started here within about two minutes. About two minutes and we'll begin. All right, your two minutes are up. We're going to go ahead and get started. Good morning. We are, uh, we're at a transition point this morning. This is, uh, well, I'll just keep going. I'll keep going. <laughs> this, is, this is it. This is the final week of our study through Michael Horton's book, Ordinary. We come to the last chapter, uh, which he calls... Didn't write it down. After Ordinary, Anticipating the Revolution. One of those chapter titles that doesn't tell you that much about what the chapter is actually going to be about. So uh, we, we've come to the end. I want to real quick, before we, before we pray and get started, just put a little plug in. Next week we don't have Sunday school. And then the week following we will be starting, uh, not the book itself, but a video lecture series of Sinclair Ferguson teaching through uh, the, the content of what he put in this book, The Whole Christ. So it's called The Whole Christ, Legalism, Antinomianism, and Gospel Assurance. Why the Marrow Controversy Still Matters. You ever heard of the Marrow Controversy? Because I hadn't before I started uh, looking. M-A-R-R-O-W, the Marrow Controversy. Um, I, I've been watching through those. I am so excited. And the, the other uh, guys that are going to be teaching have been telling me the same thing. This is, this is going to bring up a lot of thought-provoking questions, and, and uh, he, if you know, if you, if you, I think we've done some things with Ferguson before in terms of series. He, he, he is such a, such a talented teacher in terms of clearly, calmly laying out the, the, the issues. I'm really excited about it. So that'll start a week, uh, the, the week after next, uh, in, our, in our Sunday school time. If nothing else, just come for the start session. There you go, yeah, yeah. We were my, the first class I ever had in seminary was a was one of Ferguson's classes, and a guy sat sat beside me. We had to have the class at 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 the at a nearby church because the seminary room didn't hold everybody who'd registered. And the guy told me he he leaned over and he said, "I'm auditing this class, and I really just came because I want to hear Sinclair Ferguson pray." 
that, that's, that's why I'm here. And I thought, well, that's, <laughs> that's, that's something. So uh, let's, let's pray ourselves, and then we'll, we'll, uh, we'll jump into the chapter. Heavenly Father, we thank you for, for giving us life today, for allowing us to, to rise and to, to come together with our brothers and sisters. This is a time that we look forward to. It's a time of refreshing instruction, uh, always a time that brings conviction and sorrow over sin, uh, but we move straight through that to a, an even greater than appreciation of just what Jesus has done on our behalf when he died and paid for the price uh, that our sins have racked up. Lord, we thank you for our Lord. We thank you for Jesus. And it's in his name that we're here, and we, we desire to grow in conformity to his likeness. We want to, um, to see you this morning. We want to experience you as we worship you and as we learn from your word so that we would be changed more and more to look like him. We know that's your will for us. And so we ask you, Lord, to work in us today. Through this time, through our time of worship and song, through our time of, of sitting under the preached word, Lord, bless our, our, uh, our, bless our fellowship this morning. We, we, we pray for those of our body who are struggling and suffering. There are many, and I know that uh, I just heard that, that Evie is sick uh, on what, what, what is supposed to be a big day for her. We pray that you would comfort her. Um, we, we think of uh, Kelly and, uh, and James and, and the, the struggles that they're dealing with this morning. Uh, we pray for them for comfort and, uh, and for safety. Um, Lord, we pray for Kim, who's in the hospital right now, and, uh, and there are many others. Uh, but we, we give those to you, Lord. Help us now to, to, to focus our thinking, uh, knowing that your intent is that we would grow and learn and be sanctified today. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Before we get into the chapter, this is the last week, so let's. I have kind of a benefit of being able to. Uh, I'm the only one to teach a chapter who gets to teach it with all of the rest of the book in the rearview mirror, and everyone having heard all of uh, of the other chapters. So we have kind of a unique chance to try to synthesize some of the of the the cases, the arguments that he's been laying out for us in this book. Um, let me try to do that here for just a minute. Um, if you disagree profoundly with the way I, I conclude some of this, you can tell me here in a few minutes and we can discuss that. But it seems like what we've been seeing Horton do um, is to try to address a problem that he is very much worried about. He, he sees a problem uh, that has become endemic in our culture around us, uh, but more related to this book, uh, that problem has come into the church and has has affected the way that, that we as Christians think about what our new lives in Christ are supposed to be about and look like and have as priorities. Um, and he sees this as a problem that comes from the conclusion, um, in his view, the mistaken conclusion, that a radical life from man's standards, and by that I think what he means is um, our extraordinary efforts are what constitute a faithful life, and that, thus, that that is the only sort of life that should be satisfying to us, and it's the only sort of life, certainly then, that should be impressive to us. And we're going to use that word impressive a few times 
uh, this morning. He, he, this, is, this is one of the, the ways he's calling us to, to, uh, uh, to summarize our thinking. Uh, what is impressive to us as we, as we look at the Christian life? Um, so we've heard a few things over the past, the past few months as we've gone through this book. Um, what does this time... What is the diagnosis of our, of our day and age in terms of the thinking? And here are some things that he has said. Uh, ambition is the calling of the hour. Uh, and ambition, even in its historical sense, which has, has been viewed by Christians as something that is a vice that is to be guarded against because by its very nature, it's a desire that puts me and my advancement and my glory as, as the point that I'm working toward. Uh, but that mentality is seen now to be sort of the calling for us all, the expectation. Um, so that... Uh, then contentment should actually be avoided as something subpar. God forbid that I would ever come to a place where I look around at my life and I find that I am content. Because if I have gotten there, well, then I've settled. Well, then I'm, I've grown lazy. I've grown complacent. Because isn't that all that contentment means? Uh, and we, Chance did such a great job of pointing out to us that that's, that is not... Uh, it's not the biblical picture of contentment, and the Bible does call us to, to, a, to a contentment. But that battle, we see it in a lot of our spheres. We see it in our social lives. We see it in our work lives. Get out there and be somebody. Change the world. And if that's not your aim, well, then why are you, why are you thinking so low? You know, these sorts of things. And as we've said, uh, this has become true in, in our perception of church life and the Christian walk. Um, so all the way back in chapter 1, you may remember, he, he brought up the example of a girl uh, who was writing, looking back on her early 20s and reflecting, uh, who in, in, during those years had been in sort of a long-term missions situation out of the country and had come back and was now getting a job, having bills, uh, getting into more of what our culture, in our culture is the ordinary uh, experience of life, and she wrote at that point that she wasn't even sure it was possible to be faithful to Jesus in an ordinary life. You remember when she said that? And we reflected back then, what, 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 a, what an alarming thing that is if we are at a place, in terms of our definition of faithfulness, where I'm not really sure I can even be faithful if I'm not doing something that I identify as extraordinary in its scope or in its effort. Um, and the case he's been trying to make is that the Bible tells a very different story than this. The Bible tells us that history is God's story, not our story, um, and that Christ is the main character, and not me. I'm not the main character. I'm not even the main character in my own story. His glory is the main, uh, the main plot point in my story, and not my glory. Uh, the Bible tells us that God has shown himself to work through human history, and we see it in our own lives, through ordinary means of grace. It is, it is, it, it, we find him at work in places that continue happening in the mundane moments of life as well as in the exciting and rare moments of life as we, as we embrace the, the call of the gospel. Um, and all of this means that, that what we must do is learn patience and learn to trust God's timing. Um, as he said earlier in the book, we have to come to the place where we approach life as more of a marathon than a sprint. 
Because if we approach it as a sprint, when it is in fact a marathon, well, what's the result? Well, exhaustion, disillusionment, um, discouragement. Because he didn't set it up to be that way. We saw a couple of weeks ago that the fundamental relationships that I'm in are covenantal relationships as opposed to contractual relationships. Ken walked us through the difference between those things a couple of weeks ago. Um, I am covenantally obligated to God as the creator. And one of the things that means then is that I can't not be in that place. There is no exit strategy for a covenantal obligation between me and God. Uh, And I am covenantally obligated to the fellow members of that covenant as well. I can't not be. Those are obligations that are there and they are permanent. Um, And so if I do, if I sort of take an audit of my life and I examine, I try to think about the, the percentages of time my mind is spent thinking where that goes, what my priorities are, what I, what I set as, um, as the goals that I see as noble and worthy of a big picture view of my life. If I take that audit of my life and I find that it is at its deepest point about me, about my comfort, about my personal goals, of personal advancement, that covenantal relationship thing means I don't have a choice. I have to repent in that setting. I have to get busy making my life about not me. We're called to live lives that think of others as more important than ourselves. That, where does that come from? That's, that's a Bible quote, right? This, this is the sort of life that the Bible holds up to us as the life pursuit of one of God's children. So if we take all of those things and, and summarize them in terms of what he is pushing us toward, I think we could say in one way that, that you, you could use the word contentment to describe what he's trying to hold out to us um, as a whole, contentment in a few different ways. Um, we could take all of what we just said and say, all right, so he's calling us to a sort of contentment with living humbly and selflessly, contentment with trusting the gospel as God's means of salvation, and living that trust out by following in his means of grace, and contentment in uh, life in terms of covenantal obligation before God and with one another. Now, if that, if, if that is a proper way at all to try to summarize what he's pushing us toward, then, then let's ask a couple of questions before we get into this last chapter. Would we say that those things are true of the... Um, the ordinary Christian, the Christian whose sphere, who, whose name will not be remembered when he dies or she dies outside of their own local body. It's true for them, but it's not true for the Christian that God has called to something more of what we would call extraordinary, global stage, name in the history books. Is this something that's only true for the first group and not for the second group? Is the second group exempted from this sort of a pursuit of contentment? I think absolutely they are not, are they? Um, this is true of every single Christian, and it doesn't matter what, which life calling God calls us to. And I think we've done a very good job of, of clarifying all along the way something that we have to keep clarifying with a book called Ordinary. And that is that God is the one who gives us the callings he gives us. So he gives, he, he gives to many um, ordinary lives by man's estimation. He gives to some... Uh, a calling that leads to 
a foreign country and to a very dramatic life from man's estimation. All of that is of God. But all of that, no matter which one we find ourselves in, it all still comes down to a need to remember and properly value the ordinary ways that God works in, our, in, in, in and through us. Uh, these things are true no matter which of those two spheres we find ourselves in. Um, consider, for example, if the, uh, the speaker at the national conferences were to come to a place where he decided he did not need to uh, guard his prayer life. He did not need to make fellowship with a local body of believers a priority because he's a busy guy, and God's called him to bigger things than the local church fellowship and prayer. How would he be doing as he continues to go along in that? He would be suffering. His, his usefulness to the Lord would be dwindling. His ability to be discerning would drop. Why? Hasn't God called him to bigger things than that? See, I think that's the whole point of this book. God does not call any of us to bigger things than his means of grace through which he works. And that's some of the things we'll be talking about a little bit more in detail this morning. Uh, No matter what calling God gives to us, it is his ordinary means that transforms us. So the question for this last chapter is that he he wants us to consider is this. uh, What will happen to us if we embrace this idea? If we embrace the Bible's claims that we are to expect God to work through and to use us in means that we primarily consider ordinary. What will happen to us if we embrace this vision? Um, And what he's going to say is, to the extent that we begin to, to embrace this, what will happen is we will suddenly start to see glory in places that we had come to not see it. He makes a really strong point early in the chapter that we were, we were made for glory. For some, it, it may be surprising to hear him say that when he's calling us. He's got this weird shade of orange and the title is ordinary. But he says we were created for glory. Uh, to pursue it, to love it, to thirst for it. The problem is that in our fallen state we have made that all about us. Uh, and so as a result we've become blind to some of the places where God's glory shines most and most consistently and in a most transformative way. So there, this, is, this is how we'll talk through this chapter. There's going to be two places that I'm going to suggest our focus uh, will return to as we embrace this. That the frenzied nature of this world and our lives had led us to downplay and neglect. And here's that word again, um, to become unimpressed with. These are two places that I think we will find are tremendously impressive that in our thirst for frenzy and extraordinary and radical, we've stopped being impressed with them. And his goal is that we would be surprised again at just how impressive these two things are. Uh, If we stop trying to be amazed by what we do, we can begin to be amazed again at what God is doing and is doing every day, even in the mundane moments of our lives. So here's, here's the first uh, of those two places that we uh, will, Lord willing, renew our appreciation for and our amazement at, our uh, being impressed with. The first one is the experience of the age to come penetrating into our lives now. 
Uh, there was a chapter that we went through here a couple of weeks ago about the notion of the garden of God. And those statements were made that God is tending his garden. Uh, God himself, if you're a believer, here's what's happening. God, the Holy Spirit, is active within you, working in you, changing you, transforming you. Uh, like a garden, he is working and growing things. He's working me. Uh, he's not just working us individually. He's also working to, uh, he's tending the branches, the extensions of these sorts of manifestations so that um, all the things that, have, that always separate us in our fallenness, all the jealousies and all of the, the uh, judgments, the racial issues, the socioeconomic sorts of things, even down to the, um, I don't like your personality. You're, you and me are different and so I'm going to step on your face to advance myself and use you as a means. Um, all of those sorts of things, the Holy Spirit is working in the church to grow, cultivate, uh, and, and, and he's extending his garden, as it were, through, through this effort by the Holy Spirit. So what happens in us individually is we start to suddenly, uh, I, the Lord gives me faith so that I can trust in the Lord Jesus I am saved, I'm brought from death to life, I'm given the Holy Spirit as a pledge of God's work in me, and now I start to live. And it doesn't matter what sphere I'm living, it doesn't matter what calling I'm in, I start to live, and I suddenly start to slowly, over time, I'm surprised. I look into myself and I start to see things there that didn't used to be there before. The um, you've, to different degrees, I think we've all experienced this. The longer that we go in our Christian life, the more we. Uh, I've been told by by some in Bobby's care group that Matt Chandler does a great job of picturing this as the Holy Spirit gently uh, taking us through our home and opening up doors that we hadn't seen before. As as we as we walk as Christians, we become more and more aware of just how depraved we have always been, how dark it really has been in my heart. <clears throat> Sorry. Um, and, and so what happens to us as, a, as believers is all of a sudden at points... We, we, we look in inside and we start to, we go, There's, there is real love. <laughs> that, that was genuine love I just, I just experienced and displayed. Where did that come from? I figured out enough now to know that didn't used to be there. There's love. Um, there's, there's joy. Look at where I am in my circumstances. And I'm actually able to say that, I'm, that, I, that I am rejoicing. I'm joyful. I could never have done that. Where did that come from? There's peace, whoa, um, kindness. You see where I'm going with this? There's goodness in me, the, I, uh, wretched man that I am, but there is actually s- some goodness that is growing. Where did, who did that? Where did that come from? Um, you know the list, right? Faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, goodness sakes, self-control. I can actually control myself to some degree in some way now? Where is this coming from? Well, this is what we call the fruit of the Spirit, right? The Bible gives us these, these pictures of growth and cultivation because it's trying to make this point. The Holy Spirit is cultivating a garden in me, 
And as a result of that work, there is fruit coming in that, that would never have been native to that soil. It wasn't there before, and it, but it really is now, right? It's not only Christ as my Lord on high, who he is all of these things perfectly, but he, he's doing things inside of me in, a, in real space and time. Doesn't matter what job I have or what country I'm living in, as a Christian, this is taking place in me. But, you know, those, those fruits, love, joy, peace, patience, they're not just uh, the fruits of the Spirit in me. Those things are descriptions of what will characterize the age that is to come. When Christ's kingdom comes in its fullness and we are in the eternal state, those will be the, just the description of the time. A time full of love and joy and, and peace Right, these are descriptors of the age that is to come. Um, I'll stop and just give a quick illustration. Um, I, I got excited in this part of thinking through this for a very natural reason, and that is that I love fruit, just fruit. I'm a huge... If, if you want me to embarrass myself, then prepare a big bowl of fruit salad, with, especially with berries... Get your blackberries and raspberries and strawberries in there. Minimal apples. You can have bananas in there if you want to. Do, stir that and, and then just put it in front of me and watch the battle going on. I, I, I don't know why. I am crazy about fruit. I could eat myself sick. Um, what's that? With, you can put ice cream on if you want to. But the, but the real exciting part is, is the fruit. <laughs> I had I got a good friend of mine who's from Georgia. He was living with us in Houston, and he drove there. This was actually, was it last? Two summers ago, maybe? A year and a half, something like that? But he, he went for the family trip, came back, and had the back of his car full of boxes of Georgia peaches. And they were the, um, they, they, they were the real deal. They, he, he said, they, they don't ship, you can't buy these anywhere else because they won't ship them. You have to buy them on site because they will not because it'll damage, they're too high quality, so they're not going to ship. So he brought those and gave us. How many did he give us? He had a lot to give out, so he only gave us like four. I don't think I shared any with our kids. But I, I, I ate that thing, and it was, I mean, I've ne- it, was, it was so sweet and juicy. And peaches, a good peach is probably maybe top of my list, I don't know. I'm going to try to stop talking about fruit, but... It was, it was unbelievable, and I thought, I've always known this is my favorite kind of fruit. I've never had one like this. I've never had access. This is a fruit I've not had access to, and I want more of this. I, what kind of job openings are there in Georgia? Where, I want to go there, right? This is something that I have not had access to. And I'm not getting, <laughs> I'm not getting teared up about Georgia peaches. The... the um, Think about what the Bible is telling us about what's happening inside of you as you walk every day. Right? Uh, as we are seeing the fruit of God's Spirit growing in us. Experiencing fruit from another land. I mean, something that is... That is that is super natural to this place. It's not native here. God's kingdom has been inaugurated. It was inaugurated at his coming. We, it's not yet been consummated. Right? Uh, we're still suffering. We're still growing old and dying. And there's still weeping. Uh, but I am right now 
um, I'm experiencing something miraculous. And not in mountaintop ways, in daily, slow, progressive change in me. Um, We'll have friends come to visit with with kids, and the kids show up, and I'm blown away at how grown up they are, how tall they are. I hadn't seen them in a while. I I don't experience that as much with our kids, because I'm with them every day. But every once in a while, I'll look at one of them. That happened to me with Landry just the other day. I looked at his face, and I, I thought, he... His face is like grown up. Like he's, 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 there, something's changing here. And this is an exciting sort of thing uh, to, to notice, just kind of randomly. Um, we have to stop and appreciate what it is that's happening as we go month to month, year to year, decade to, de- to decade, through, through whatever calling God gives us in the ordinary, daily um, process. I thought about Second Corinthians 12, Paul tells us that he was taken. He doesn't know if it was bodily or not. He was taken up into heaven and, and let to see heaven. He saw the kingdom of God and he was not allowed. <laughs> I didn't turn apart here. I didn't get enough sleep last night or something. I'm too emotional. He um, he saw it, and he, didn't, he wasn't allowed to tell us what he saw. But I read that, and I get a little jealous. What was it? What was it like? Um, you are experiencing otherworldly transformation right now. But why does that not impress us? We, we spend all our time thinking about certain things that are impressive from, from the world's standards. Someone checks off something on their bucket list. Wow, I can't believe they got to go do that. Look at those pictures on Facebook of that trip that they took. Man, that's cool. That's, those are the world's standards. Why are we being impressed in the church according to what the world's standards of, of what's impressive are. We are being changed into new creatures. How about that? You want to go to Italy, or do you want to become a new creature? Uh, it's, it's happening, but what's, what's difficult is that it's happening slowly in increments, day by day, and we cease to be impressed by it. We figure out that it's precious. We, we, we learn to treasure those things when they go away. When we go through the dark times that we all go through as Christians, and the fruit dries up, and the Lord feels far from us, we're miserable, right? We suddenly realize how, how much it is meant to us, what he's doing in us, and then when it's not there. So the first place that our focus can return to as we, as we come to see what I think is the point of this book, with renewed amazement and praise and with a restored appreciation, is the reality of the, the age that is to come coming out of me. And it comes out of me in small ways. When I find myself able to sympathize and love in places where I would have been cold before or apathetic, that's otherworldly fruit coming out of me. When I'm able to um, stop putting myself first and go and serve in places that I know I wouldn't have been willing to before, that's otherworldly transformation in me. 
And I need to take that fruit and take a bite of it and go, oh my goodness, this, this should impress us. It doesn't matter what calling, what particular calling God has for me. These are things that continually, constantly impress us. Um, Jesus said something in Luke chapter 10. You don't have to turn there. But the, Luke chapter 10, in verse 20, his disciples had just come back after he gave them authority to cast out demons. You remember that? Um, and they are pretty amazed. And I would be too. They, they've just been commanding demons, and demons have been obeying them. Um, and Jesus immediately stops them. And he says, Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Right? This is my work I've given you. I've, I've put you on this calling. And in your case, it involved doing supernatural things, very radical things. I do that sometimes with people. But even if that's your calling, never, never flip-flop what is really amazing in your life. Um, Martin Lloyd-Jones made a comment about that, that exact verse, by the way. Um, uh, seven months before his death, he was, he was moving toward, he knew he was dying, uh, but he was talking with, with Ian Murray about, um, well, they were very close, but he brought up Luke 10.20 uh, and Jesus' warning. And Lloyd-Jones said, bear that in mind. Our greatest danger is to live upon our activity. Our relationship to God is to be the supreme cause of our joy. And that from a man whose name is in all the church history books. If I'm ever bored at those sorts of realities, then I have fallen into the mistake that led Horton to write this book. And you'd have to agree that you've been bored with those realities at points. Maybe even consistently. We have been taught to. That's the point. We've been lied to about what's really amazing and impressive in the Lord's work on this earth. So that's the first place that we can be impressed with again, and we have to be impressed with it, because if we're not impressed with it, we will not prioritize it. We will prioritize what we are impressed with. There are real consequences to getting these things off. The second place that we can come again to be impressed with and excited at in a proper way is the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. He, call, he, he says uh, that we, we must return to a place where, we, where we, we, we think of the second coming of Christ as the next big thing on God's timetable. We're always looking to be a part of the next big thing. He says there is a next big thing on God's timetable. It's called the return of the Lord Jesus. That's what the Bible holds out to us and says, look for with excitement and expectation and eagerness. And if that's what the next big thing truly is on God's timetable, then guess what that means? That means that ushering in the next big thing, changing the world um, through my activity and my creativity, is not my calling. That is What I mean by that is that's not what God has told me to think on and work toward. Changing the world, being, bringing in the next big thing. Now, uh, might God use me to change the world? Uh, may he use my faithful labors? Of course, he does that all the time. But that's not the focus he has told me to place in front of my face. This brings up uh, something that Tom led us through in chapter 4, 
when we, we talked about what our understanding of revival is. We compared Jonathan Edwards' definition of revival to Charles Finney's definition. And let me remind you that real quickly. Edwards, remember Jonathan Edwards, who was really one of the main sparks in the first great awakening? Um, well, before we hear his definition, what was he doing when he ushered in with his labors the next big thing in American history there? What was he doing? He was preaching the next passage on a Sunday morning. That's what he was doing. He was being faithful to the ordinary means of grace that God had set before him. He had preached that sermon. I've read that he had preached that sermon elsewhere before that. Nothing happened apart from the congregation being sanctified and clarified in their thinking and and convicted of sin. And he preached it here, and he was surprised at the effect that it had, at what, what the Lord did with it. He was not trying to usher anything in. He was trying to be faithful to the Word of God, to His people. Um, and so when he spoke of revival, here's how he defined it, and I, he is exactly right about this. He, he defined revival as God's extraordinary blessing on His ordinary means of grace. Revival happens when we are being faithful and God chooses in His own sovereign purposes to pour out extraordinary blessing on those ordinary means of grace. Now, By contrast, Charles Finney called revival the philosophical result of the right use of means, like any other effect. And so he thought it his duty to produce revival. And so what did he do? Well, his emphasis was on uh, what is the setting I can create, what sort of atmosphere, what sort of manipulation, tactics, because it's all about a philosophical result. Um, And that had its effect as well. And I think that that explains much of what the South is like right now, uh, because of the burnout that came as a result, and the, and the, uh, I mean, these these things have their consequences. But Edwards, as an example, is helpful to us because he was not his mindset was to be faithful in the particular calling God had called him to trust God, to trust God's timing, and we see what what happened. Uh, we're told to be eagerly awaiting. Christ's return, and not just eagerly awaiting it, but being found when he comes to be about his business. I don't know when he's going to come, and when he does, I, need, I want to be found doing his work. Um, and there's a couple of passages, we're going to have to go kind of quickly here uh, through these, but I just want to point these out to you, that seem to describe what doing that work is supposed to look like. In Luke chapter 12, you might turn there for just a moment, Luke 12, um, starting in verse 42, Jesus gives a parable. It says, And the Lord said, Who then is the faithful and sensible steward whom his master will put in charge of his servants to give them their rations at the proper time? Blessed is that slave whom his master finds so doing when he comes. Truly I say to you that he will put him in charge of all of his possessions. But if that slave says in his heart, My master will be a long time in coming, And begins to beat the slaves, both men and women, and to eat and drink and get drunk. The master of that slave will come on a day when he does not expect him, and at an hour he does not know, and will cut him in pieces and assign him a place with the unbelievers. And we'll just stop there. The the point of bringing this up uh, right now is to point out the descriptions of the faithful servant and the faithless servant. What is making the one faithful and the other not? 
Well, verse 42 tells us that that faithful servant, what he's found to be doing is serving his fellow servants. That's a task that's been given to him. The one that is faithless, in verse 45, the way he's displaying his faithlessness is that he's mistreating the people that God has put, put around him. He's beating his fellow slaves. He's wasting his master's possessions and using them for his own pleasure. Uh, the last place I'll read to you is 1 Thessalonians 4, 9 through 12. Paul says there, and just, just notice the, the description here. I wish we had more time for this. Starting in verse 9. Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you. For you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. For that indeed is what you were doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers. So what's, what's the urge here? He, they, they have been faithfully loving as they have been written to. Uh, it's known. But now he's going to, well, we urge you, brothers, to do this more. Oh, okay. To do this more and more. And to aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs, which doesn't mean mind your own business. It means take care of the affairs that God has given to you. Be faithful. And to work with your hands as we instructed you so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. And this is just one passage, but what is the, what's being held up here as faithful living? It's very simple. It is being concerned and loving to those that God has put in our sphere, uh, aspiring to be faithful in the place that he has set us, to mind our affairs, and to live in such a way that, that uh, we are uh, walking properly before outsiders and being dependent on no one. A picture in these passages is of a people whose gaze is set on the return of Christ and who, as they are waiting, have set these things as their priorities. Holiness of themselves, personal holiness, holiness of those around them, personal sacrificial love and service to their neighbors. Now, my neighbors might be a tribe in Tanzania. God may call that to be my setting. None of this is, is, a, is a diminishing of the, of the by, man's view, by man's estimation, big, radical, unexpected. This fits no matter what calling God calls us to, doesn't it? We are told to remember what is primary and to be impressed at the things that God is doing in and through us. So in conclusion here, we need to, we need to end, try to give a couple of minutes for some comments, but uh, we will prioritize in our thoughts and actions the things that we are most impressed with. And we must work to see our lives as they really are, as set on a path of God's choosing, a life full of rich meaning and wonder as we are transformed by God's grace and a life, no matter what the details turn out to be, that is marked by an eager and busy waiting for Christ's return. What are, what are any uh, closing thoughts, comments that you would like to share as we finish up this study? Mike? Well, there, there's, there's an important, I mean, that, that passage is important in that there's an important distinction to be made too, that our works before God are filthy rags as we are bringing them to him for our justification. Right? They have no standing before him. But the works that are coming out of a changed nature, 
that are that are a reflection of the very character of God, those are pleasing. He 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 tells us there are ways to please him in our in our conduct and in our you know. So we are to pursue those things, but never in the justification side. That's getting those works on the sanctification side and not the justification side. And boy, I don't know. I have a feeling eh, that's that's exactly what's what's coming up. So, any other thoughts or? Comments before we close? Right. Uh, I think Paul Tripp really gets into this area, especially on that video that you did recently. But I remember one incident where he was in his study below a balcony or stairs and was in a serious study of preparing for something. And his wife, and his wife. leads over the balcony and asks him a, asks him a question. Looks up at her and says, "Don't you see? I'm in my study. I'm working on something important." Yeah. yeah. And her response was, "What did I do to deserve that response?" Yeah. And I'll never forget. Yeah. That. And to me, that was impressive. It impressed on him his failure yeah. to love his wife as he'd been called to do. Yeah. And so those are those are the impressive. That's right. And they happen in the mundane moments as, as well as any other. That's right. Yeah. Which, if you think about it, I mean, isn't that just a testament to how uh, tireless the Lord is? It doesn't say anything about those moments as less. It means He is never not working in us. That's something. Let me pray for us and we'll be will be concluded. Father, again, we, we, we thank you. We trust that you are doing a great number of things in us and among us as we think through these sorts of biblical truths. You have brought this to us by your sovereign plan for a reason, to, to meet a need and to, uh, and to glorify yourself in us. Lord, I pray that we would not be resistant to that, I pray that the thoughts that, and the convictions that you are putting on our heart as we weigh ourselves in these things and evaluate, that we would not be quick to forget them, that we would, we would be zealous in our pursuit of our growth. We thank you that you were so dedicated to us. And we love you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.